0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why
2: Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, everything in the whole world has its own history, like wishing, heat and skin. Or
2: Games, Flames and Sames. Sames, I think, is the history of cloning, or the history of twins, or Names, Ames and James is, in fact, the history (laughs) of of me. Yes, history of me. (laughs) I wonder what kind of of history that would be. in Intelligence, good looks, panache, (laughs) and, of course, modesty. (laughs) We will be following... the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of oranges is all about luxury, Tudor spies, deception, imperial trade and, of course, laundry. Or that the history of windows is about nosy neighbours, taxation, status, the Enlightenment, Reformation, 30 years. What, in fact, windows could be about almost
1: anything. If history was a man... Yes. ...under surveillance... The man sitting opposite me would be the binoculars. He is the human binoculars of history himself. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History, Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James.
2: Hello, Sam, and Happy New Year to you. And the man sitting opposite me, and there is a a theme here, the man sitting opposite me is the J. Edgar Hoover of historical surveillance. It's the famous historical adventurer and truly fashionable man about town,
1: (laughs) Dr. Sam Willis. Today's a very exciting day uh, because James and I have been in Inspired by a film coming out called Seaburg, which is out on the 10th of January. And we have been um, inspired to do a podcast on truth and lies. We it, certainly have. It's something that I've been wanting to do for a, for a long, long time, actually. We touch on it on some of our other stuff. Um, we did a podcast on surveillance. We've
2: done no, stuff. We, we did a we've, on... we've talked about news. We've yeah. talked about uh, secret codes. Yeah things like that. Um, But yes, absolutely brilliant film. Lead character is Christian Stewart, she of Twilight fame. Mm -hmm. Uh, We love the Twilight saga. It's a biopic of US actress Jean Seberg, uh, who is an absolutely fascinating character. Um, She's basically a complete unknown and wins a talent drive in the US. So Hollywood is looking for new stars. She rises to... Incredible fame. She becomes the doyenne of new wave um, French uh, film from a very um, ropey start. From, as well. a, from a very ropey start. Yeah, yeah. she um, th- her first film uh, that she wins the competition for, uh, Saint Joan, which is a life of um, of Joan of Arc, gets panned. But then she goes, you know, she has this sort of meteoric rise, becomes a household name, and the film focuses on a particular part of her life when she becomes involved with the black power movement. Um, She's been a sympathiser of civil rights in the US uh, from a very early age. Um, She joined the NAACP aged 14. She gave money um, to programmes that were connected to black schools. And she gets involved with uh, a character called um, Hakim Jamal. And through this, she gets involved with the Black Panthers. She starts um, giving them money, so sponsoring them. And at this point, the FBI get interested. So they pick her up from a a sort of a... Phone call that she has with one of the Black Panther uh, leaders. Um, And according to the FBI director, uh, Hoover, uh, she's deemed to be a threat to the protective organs of the body politic. And so, what entails is a full wire and um, sort of tap of her. Yeah. And so, so the film is about it's about surveillance of her. It's 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 also, and this is what led us to think about truth and lies. There is also the way in which the FBI used the evidence against her and distort it in order to tarnish her name and rubbish her in the public eye. And what we see after that is a sort of psychological disintegration of her.
1: And 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 really, this is a sort of springboard for looking at. All sorts of histories. All sorts of histories. I mean, I think one of the, the most interesting aspects of this is, is is the surveillance aspect of it. So the first question is to find out exactly what is going on. Yep. Um, so it's to find out the truth of what's going on, um, to see how far she is involved in, um, in funding these radical black power movements, and then manipulating that knowledge, yep. um, deciding whether truth is going to be more effective or lies is going to be more effective in the press. And so she's caught in this web of, of, of truth and lies being manipulated by someone else. So, yeah, there, there, are, there are so many different ways. But I, I, I think we can look at it. But I think the key point is to say that Seaburg as a film is a fantastic example of how you can study truth and lies at a particular moment in time. So it's in America, yeah. and it's in the 1960s. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's when... I mean, Hoover's been in charge of the FBI for some time, for 30 years or so. Yeah, He's yeah. approaching the end of his tenure. He knows exactly what's going on. He's flexed his powers, his muscles, beyond anything anyone's ever done before. So it, it really made me realise that you can, you can study truth and lies at any moment in history, and this is a single example... Of it.
2: it is. Um, but what, what's fascinating about it is that looking at it as a film, the film is itself not history. So there are certain sort of distortions of, of truth. So you shouldn't look at film, you know, simply as a historical document. You know, there are inaccuracies. But as historians, we can, we can overlook that. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, the film is interesting for what it tells us about our own society today. And the reason that this film is being produced is because of a public interest in truth... Yeah, we've got the sort of whole sort of Trump fake news thing, but also surveillance, Uh, and also the um, uh, Black Lives Matter. You know, big sort of um, campaign in America. And in fact, this film is brought to us by the team, the directorial and cinematography team that did Black Panther. Yeah. So, so Black Power uh, and and civil rights is absolutely breathing through this. It's a wonderful sort of. I was trying to think about how I would characterise it as a movie. Um, it's it's a film noir thriller come romance. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit like um, All the President's Men. It's a bit like, and we've talked about this in the past, um, The Lives of Others, so the Stasi sort of surveillance and spying. It has absolutely standout performances by Christian Stewart um who, who is just breathtaking in this the cinematography i think is is, is
1: that's wonderful. great they just created the 60s in in la and new york yep. um you know in touch of france it, it's that's that is is completely magnificent um so one point is that w- w- we we're, we're in this age where all of these themes are important to us now, but they were also crucially important in the 60s. And there is a strong yes. parallel there. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's a key kind of window into history to say, if you're interested in this, it help, if you're interested in this part of history, then have a look around you. It'll help you understand what's going on today and vice versa. If you're yep. interested in what's going on today, you can go back to the 60s and you can look yeah, at yeah. all of these themes of truth, lies, surveillance, racism. Um you know struggles for power uh, it's it's fantastic and also people overstretching like the f b i overstretching its legal oh totally position totally and um, that's something that's that 's become you know increasingly newsworthy especially and and popular in yeah. films um yeah I saw the film Vice recently, which has got Christian Bale who um, plays dick cheney <laughs> okay. and, and it's similar've seen that it's, a, it's fantastic it 's a similar study of, of how someone flexes their muscles and yeah. and breaks laws and and um, changes the kind of the format of what is what is acceptable what is possible, and there's a, there's a legal reaction to it as yeah. well and in that respect it's very similar there i mean what what I think is is fascinating here is
2: the way in which in which what you have is is surveillance institutionalized into a series of bodies like the FBI and so it just becomes an endemic part of american society yeah. and you know it's not only to it's not only to eavesdrop on foreign powers but actually to eavesdrop on what they see as political radicals within the country mm. and to actually neutralise them. And, and what's fascinating is that it's not just the... It's very Stasi-like, isn't it? it? It's really Stasi-like, but it's not yeah. just the black power that they're after. They're after feminists, communists, anti-Vietnam people, uh, civil rights, black power. You've got Martin Luther King being spied on, uh, the Nation of Islam, the Black Panther movement, the American Indian movement mm. as well. You know, are all being
1: spied on. And and, um, and, and then the, the, that information is being used as a disinformation.
2: Inf- yes, as disinformation, and they infiltrate these gangs, they use false news, they use false stories, they use intimidation. Um, you know, there, there, there is a sort of a degree to which they are absolutely perverting their cause. There's a great
1: quote from the FBI, one of the FBI officers in this, and it says, Our job is to cause her embarrassment and to cheapen her image in the eyes of the public. Yeah. It's unbelievably sinister
2: yeah and and it and it and it's the way in which you use fake news or fake i mean fake news is such a, a terrible sort of baggy term but the way in which you basically make up propaganda myths about people in order
1: to destroy them yeah. so how do we get into this i mean how how, how what's the, the sort of easiest way of picking this apart and focusing on certain aspects of it do you reckon
2: well i think one of the ways is actually to look at the to look at this in in the context you know, of the time, and to think about what the FBI is doing. Um, And it's part of the counterintelligence programme, which from the end of the 50s into the beginning of the 70s is basically in place to counter what they see as domestic threats. Yeah. And Jean Seberg, this actress, is one of a number of high-profile people who are being targeted during this period. John Lennon is being targeted during this period. Martin Luther King, Marilyn Monroe, even, even um, um, President um, Roosevelt's wife uh, is being targeted uh, during this period because she's seen as, as suspicious. Um, and it shows that kind of slipperiness between you know, what we see as state power, you know, for the good of the country, and and actually what is a sort of very dark, sort of, you know, slightly illegal world that goes on, that is the sort of, you know, that is the stuff of thrillers, basically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I kind of came at this in, in a number of ways, thinking about truth and lies, and I thought you could you could basically look at it in terms of discovering the truth, hiding the truth, inventing the truth, popularising surveillance... Um, um, rights to privacy, and all of these things have their own history. It's exactly what we do. We don't expect to say that every single aspect of this film has its own history. Um, and a solid place to start when you're working with a film which is fictional but based around a historical, a proven historical event is to actually look at the history. Yes. Uh, and I think one of the most, I think, um, sort of profoundly inspiring documents I've come across about this whole Seeberg affair is this letter. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. This is a letter written in June 1970, on the 5th of June 1970. And it's headed the counterintelligence programme Black Nationalist Hate Group's Racial Intelligence Black Panther Party. It's written in, uh, in L.A. and it's been sent to the director of the FBI. And it says here, Ray Artel, I'm not sure what that actually is, requests Bureau Authority to forward a letter from a fictitious person to Hollywood, California, gossip columnists to publicize the pregnancy of Gene Seberg, well-known white movie actress by. Uh Uh See what I've done there? And then it's beeped. (laughs) It's redacted to possibly cause her embarrassment and tarnish her image with the general public. Information from... (laughs) There we go again. Indicated that Seberg was four months pregnant by... Now, to protect the sensitive source of information from possible compromise and to ensure the success of your plan, Bureau feels it would be better to wait approximately two additional months until Seberg's pregnancy would be obvious to everyone. If deemed warranted, submit your recommendation at that time. At the bottom, it says that Jean Seberg has been a financial supporter of the Black Panther Party and should be neutralised. Her current pregnancy by while still married, affords an opportunity for such effort, as in the neutralisation. The plan suggested by LA appears to have merit except for the timing, since the sensitive source might be compromised if implemented prematurely. A copy is designated to San Francisco since its sensitive source coverage is involved. Right. So this is the official letter saying that what they're going to do is take the fact that they have discovered through surveillance that she is pregnant and to manipulate it and to tell lies about it. What they want to do is to spread lies that the baby um, has come from... Uh, the father of the baby is a leading figure maybe in the Black Panther Party, certainly yep. someone in, in a black nationalist...
2: In the film, in the film it, they, they claim that it's Hakim Jamal That's who fine. she has the affair with, but in, in real life it, it's claimed that it's Raymond Hewitt, another member of the party.
1: So um, what I really got into by looking at this letter was the history of redaction. Mm. Because if you're studying surveillance and you're studying letters and you're studying things like this, you come across this all the time. It's absolutely fascinating. So it, it's a bit of a weird thing to do if you think about it from a kind of a secret service point of view. Yep. So someone is saying, this bit is so important <laughs> I'm going to black it out very obviously in yep. a letter and often it's got deleted written yes. next to it. Yeah. So what what they're actually doing is they're highlighting the bit that's really really important. Yeah. The other thing to bear in mind is that when people redact a document like this, they're doing so not off the top of their heads, but by a written guideline, which is open to human interpretation. And one of the most fascinating things about dealing with redacted documents like this is that you can get carbon copies of the same document that's been redacted in different ways. Uh, So, huh, isn't that cool? Very good. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually kind of... Materiality of of letters. Yes, and it, it... which is what you did. Yes, exactly. um, I'm just treading on yes. your toes. Yes. Um, no, no. So it reveals problems with centralisation of administration. If you've got two humans reading the same letters and deciding yes. in a different way what is important and what isn't important. And the other point about this, um, if you think about just editing letters as well, it's fascinating. We'll, we'll come back to another reason why it is. But the um, the term redaction is actually... It, this is a very, very modern usage of it, and it's, it's basically associated with, um, with secret, uh, um, private knowledge which, mm-hmm. which can or can't go public. But it actually originally referred to the art of editing a document into one. So say you've got three sources, of something, and you're going to take a little bit from source A, a little bit from source B, and a little bit from source C, and you're going to put them all together, and yep. you're going to make a document. Yeah, that is the original use of the term redaction, and it's used particularly in in um, Bible studies and biblical biblical yep. studies. So you've got, um, especially, there are portions of um, the Hebrew Bible, but especially the New Testament, which is pieced together from a number of different sources. So we know that the five five books of the Bible are thought to include a Jahwist source, an Elohist source and a Deuteronomist source. Okay, so the point is, if you read the Bible in Hebrew, God goes by different names at different points. It's not just for variety. It's actually the result of it coming together from different sources. And scholars working with texts like that try and unpack pick them so you can actually get back to the original sources. Yep, yep. So if you're trying to understand the truth of a letter, this form of redaction where Seberg's letter has had um, stuff blacked out, you need to find what um, what has been deleted essentially. Yep. And then you get to the original document. But Redaction as a as a as an activity is something that actually used to be much more complicated than that. Where you're you're looking at a historical source and you're trying to unpick it and reverse this process of editing to make it into one. Yep. Absolutely amazing. And
2: the reason that this is redacted is because these documents, which were secret FBI files, have been released to for public knowledge yep. and maybe. Maybe harmful to the FBI or harmful to national security. You know, there's been a lot of talk about this kind of thing with, you know, with Trump in the press recently. You know, certain things that have been whole sections of things that have been that have been redacted because they're seen uh, as too dangerous. So, so that yeah, so absolutely.
1: Yeah. But um, this is quite an interesting one. So what they're doing is they are, they are redacting. Um, the name of the person who made her pregnant yeah they are redacting the name of the source who's told them that yes. she's pregnant yep. so there's someone protecting very, that. there's source. someone very close yes. to her um and that is just repeated um four times but th- th- those are the, the key things there so they're protecting their interest and they are protecting the real name of the father uh, there are layers and layers of truth and noise here. presumably
2: Honor. because it's a slur yeah um because and her husband stands by her yeah, uh, and in fact, when this hits the when this news story breaks, it hits the I think it's the L.A. Times first of all, and then it gets picked up by Newsweek. Her husband, Romaine Gary, um, the the sort of uh, writer and and diplomat, um, stands by her, and in fact, they sue uh, Newsweek mm. and win you know quite a colossal sum, but. What's fascinating, and um, we can talk about this in a bit, is the the impact that it has upon her, mm. um, the, the sort of psychological impact that this kind of surveillance state has on people, um, that it they, that it is seen as something that is innately repressive, and and in the film, um, in the film, and what is fascinating is the deeply personal response of her. It's the impact that this has upon her and her psychological sort of downfall. Yeah. It, does, it doesn't go on to her later possible suicide nine years later, but certainly um,
1: she loses her. She miscarries yeah, yeah. Uh, after this. There's, one of the interesting things about it is there's, you know, it actually reveals the lie to sticks and stones may break my bones, yes. but words yes. will never hurt me. Yes. So this is a fundamental yes, totally. proof that that's completely untrue. And if there's, if you want evidence of the unbelievable Power of words. Yes. Then this is it. Yes. This so if, if people it. wanted
2: to see this film, um, when, when's it out, Sam? Tenth, tenth of January. Tenth of January. So you should all rush to your local cinema uh, or film uh, filmmonger uh, and and see it. It's a great. It's a great film. And I I wonder whether the reason that it's being released now is because it's Oscar season. Mm. I wouldn't be at all surprised if um if Stewart was Oscar nominated for this. Where are you going to go next? Where am I going to go next? Well, I'm going to go... Um, I was going to go in all sorts of ways. Um, but I'm, I'm going to go to this idea of fake news. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to take us back
1: to the Renaissance period. So, in the film, this is the... The, the, the fake news they leak is that Seaberg is pregnant by a leading member of... Um, yeah. One of the Black power, power groups. There we are. Take that. So, um, because I think I think there is a very long
2: history of um, of lying for state purposes. Um, And, you know, it's very much in the news nowadays because Donald Trump um, has coined the term fake news, the lying press, the lying media, to denigrate anyone who is anti-him. Interestingly, the British government won't use the term. Mm. Um, And from a few years ago, wouldn't use the term because it's so distorted, because it can basically mean anything from a mistake all the way through to um, international espionage by foreign powers in order to destabilise democracy, Um, you know, which allegedly we see with the tampering in the US election. But this kind of thing happened, um, you know, since Ancient times and on, and you could find you could find evidence of that. The example that I have, however, is from. This <laughs> just handed me the most horrific thing. Yeah, it, it, it's it's terrible, isn't it? But it's from a, um, it's from 1475. Wow, uh, and is a published pamphlet in published in Trent, the northern Italian city. And it relates to the death or murder of a young boy uh, called Simoncino, a little boy who was murdered uh, in this city in 1475. And what it is, it is, it, it is a carefully orchestrated case mounted against the Jewish population of that town. And one individual, the Prince Bishop Giovanni Hindeberg, accused them... ..of ritual murder. Mm. And what he does is he rounds them all up, arrests them, puts them on trial, tortures them, Mm. and surprisingly enough, they confess to this and they are then burned. And what we see here is a printed edition of the story with very vivid woodcut illustrations that basically what we've got is new technology in other words print um being used or misused in order to demonize
1: the jewish peoples yeah and these images are pretty graphic we've got um, a series of 12 yeah. vivid images like a cartoon yeah. and they've all got um the general theme of them are a group of adults with distinctive beards and headgear to make them appear jewish uh, and usually in the centre of each one is a child who is having something horrific done to him, yep. him or it, um, from, well, I mean, that's all torture of some description and leading up to beheading.
2: I mean, this is the young... This, it, Basically what they're showing is the sort of ritual murder of this of this young boy. So this is the story oh, that, they are, Charles, per, yeah. that they are perpetuating and that they are selling. What's fascinating, though, is the way in which it doesn't just stop there. mm mm-hmm. It's the way in which it then takes popular imagination. We see a forensic examination of the child's body by a famous physician, Giovanni Mattia Tiberino, uh, which is also published in Trent in 1475, basically confirming that this is exactly what happened. Um, There are then a series of um, influential writers who are approached by Hindenbach, um, the, the prince-bishop, to publish word, works generating this sort of cult of the boy. So you get this idea that he's almost that he's a sort of saint-like figure. Um, there are anti-Jewish sermons um, uh, sort of, sort of spoken, preached, uh, and also published during this period. Um, there is resistance to it. Not everyone believes it. But the state has the power of the printing press and is able to put this story out. I came across this when I was in Venice uh, at Easter and saw a brilliant exhibition called Printing Evolution, uh, 1450 to 1500. And this woodcut and little example comes from the catalogue of the exhibition. Uh, I've been waiting for ages to get (laughs) into an unexpected podcast. But what it shows is the way in which fake news is... You know, is yeah. is is very much earlier. I will come. I will come back to that as a as an idea and relate it to the
1: way in which, as historians, we combat fake news. Okay. Um, I, the interesting thing here is, you know, is who is the victim? The, his, the victims is really interesting. So, yes. so you, you you might think that um, you've got the the child who is obviously being ritually murdered in one, two, three, what four, four, not in twelve horrific ways or steps of of murder. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it's actually the Jewish community who are the victims here. In the same way with Seaberg, where everything is focused on what happens to Jean Seaberg. Yes. um, Which is utterly appalling. But there's a very clear point that she's actually not the real victim here. The real victim is the civil rights movement. Yes. Um, And they are using um, Seaberg to damage her. And, you know, you're holding these dits, seeing one through the lens of the other, which is a good parallel, James. You should be a historian. I should be. Like that. I should be. Yeah. Um, where are you going to go with this? I love the bit in the film where the um, the FBI guy goes into a goes into a um, Seaberg has a party, um, and the wires that they've put in the telephones or behind the curtains wherever they are stop working. Yeah, and um, there's a crucial discussion where Seaberg is basically offering money to uh, the Black Panthers or one of the Black Panther movements, yeah. and the FBI guy is in a van outside and he realizes he has to get this, so he puts like a kind of battery pack down his trousers with a, <laughs> with a microphone in it and runs in and um, pretends to be a waiter. Hmm. <laughs> it's quite stressful. What, what? Um, but yeah, th- that made me think about the, um, the technology of eavesdropping. So th- there is there's plenty of.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,
1: stuff going on here about observing there's lots of photographs being taken there's lots of peering yeah. through binoculars these beautiful kind of 1960s thing i love love the um yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a telescope he uses and you can see it's like an original with a lovely lens um so also
2: able to also able to pick up sound
1: yes so the observation yes. is part yes. of it but actually the the main theme that runs through it is audio surveillance yes which has its own history of course yes um, and you can go into this in all sorts of, of fascinating ways. Um, the first one that struck me, of course, is our Tudor examples that we use in our show, in our, our live show on the Tudors, with with people uh, listening, eavesdropping. eavesdropping and listening yes. through windows. Yes, so it's
2: over... It's, o- it's yeah. basically... I mean, and totalitarian regimes as well would have spies out simply listening to what people were saying. And in former times, when there aren't these complicated technologies that allow you to record and eavesdrop remotely um, people would literally sit there and record by hand
1: yeah yeah there's a great example is it was at 1566 when edward godfrey's sitting in his window yes. minding his own business yes and then um anne parry who his neighbor comes out and starts ranting in the street about a really good friend of his alice pickering and he writes everything down he's like whoa whoa what's going on here and then later on um, Alice Pickering uses the notes that Edward Godfrey took yep. Yep. in court, yep. so that's how we know about it now. It's an example of how how we can recreate examples of Tudor eavesdropping. Well,
2: whatever it might be. Also, it's interesting because what you have is a climate of
1: surveillance. Ah, you know, the, okay.
2: the, the Tudor state is a is a surveillance state, so people are listening and watching. And it's not just they're listening um, to. It's not just about foreign powers that they're distrustful of. It is actually. About, it's it's about political enemies within, but also that's eavesdropping on people's everyday behaviour. So it's the church policing people's social behaviour, and particularly around slander litigation, particularly around sexual crimes, yeah. so adultery and all of those kinds of things.
1: So yeah, we got at the moment with the Seaberg, we got the FBI doing the policing, yeah. but in the past it was the church, yes. or it could have been yes. the church, among others. Um, I did a little bit of looking into the, um, the history of eavesdropping. And uh, Kelly M. Turner, at the turn of the 20th century, so early 1900s, invented something called the dictograph. Ooh. So when it, when it was... It's something that can pick up sound from a long distance away. Okay. Um, but it only works with wires. So it's, it's before wireless has kind of enabled a radio signal to, to, to actually send what's going on. So you can put a box in a room... And then you can have a wire running into another room, and you can sit there and you can listen in detail to what's being said. Uh, And I love it. It was originally designed for as an office communication system. And very often with spyware, you have technology being designed for one thing, and someone goes, "Oh, hang on a minute, I've got a properly good idea." So we know who invented it as. Um, as what was supposed to be office communication systems or being able to transmit op- opera was what was another one. You could put your, put your opera box there and then you yeah. have a wire to another room and everyone can hear it. Um, so we don't know who suddenly clicked that it could be used to pick up all sorts of things. I love that. So there's a very open history of someone inventing something and then a hidden lost history of people being able to manipulate that for mm. other uses. Um, there's a wonderful description of this in an early newspaper where, where they, they were trying to describe exactly what it was. this guy explains it consisted of a six ounce circular transmitter connected by wires to a mysterious box that was about 11 inches in length six inches in height and four inches wide two holes in the sides a few nickel projections at one end and a row of little switches on one side comprise all that an outside view would give Now, what he hasn't mentioned here is is what is described in the 1907 patent of this thing. Um, It says that there's a kind of a microphone that consists of a carbon block with highly polished hemispherical cavities that were two thirds filled with half millimetre carbon balls. These rested loosely against a carbon diaphragm and vibrated in response to sound waves in the room. So it's a super, super sensitive microphone, and it's probably about the same size as a... Um, small suitcase. Hmm. Um, it's basically like a dictaphone. It's basically like a dictaphone that's yes. wired to some people listening next yes. door. One of the first acknowledgements that it could be used for listening in was that um, was for prisons. Hmm. So the inventor himself said that prisoners talk a good deal among themselves and to each other when they are in their cells. I am told the warden would be able to hear their faintest whispers, which might be useful on occasions um others realized that it could go all sorts of ways there's a lovely poem here from 1912 it's a poem by lurana sheldon great name in the new york times When a fellow's gone a-courting in the good old-fashioned way and has got right down to business as regards his wedding day, when he's on his knees and popping, it's not nice to hear a laugh and to know that someone's got him on a pesky dictograph. (laughs) (laughs) When you're with a fair companion in your office den or car and your thoughts are far too anxious to be soothed by a cigar, when you're on the verge of madness, it's not nice to halt perforce lest some court hears all you've told her when her husband seeks divorce so it's good, such a good film so it's being used by private eyes to spy on yes, people as well. yes yes and they realize that actually one of the key things here it's um it's what humans are actually brilliant at and it's that having sex with each other which is yes. a key thing that comes into the seaberg film yes, and it's the yes. one way they really start manipulating her yeah. when they realize she's having a physical relationship yeah, yeah, with yeah. um with with hakim yeah. jamal as it's presented yeah, yeah, in yeah. the film people realize there are problems with it and that blood and fingerprints are much more accurate. So the judges start throwing this out from uh, court cases on the basis of hearsay. There's no kind of yeah. proof. Until they work out, they need to actually record the voices. But then there's a the problem of um, transcription, which I think is fascinating. So one of the things in, this, in, the, in, the, in the film is that all of the audio comes through pretty clear. They have a bit of trouble at the beginning when there's a road nearby. But it's all very clear and it's, it's, it's kind of well heard. But the early dictograph stuff... Um, you've got the problem of people having to just dis- to transcribe it and you lose so much sense um in, well, a you've got to be able to hear it so that if if yep. there's not um distractive noises but it's the ability to write down human language uh, uh, which i think is fascinating so there's a history of transcription here so i could say for example james i love your shirt
2: thank you it's beautifully <laughs> yeah
1: no. Not. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't your shirt beautifully ironed? Yes. For example, yes. Uh, clearly is not beautifully no. ironed. No, no, no. Um, but if you read that in a transcription, be like, oh, commenting on how James turned out very smartly dressed hmm. to um, to, to, record to record his podcast his on tr- on Truth <laughs> and Lies. Yes. Um, which I thought was fascinating. So, just because there are transcriptions of it, doesn't in any stretch mean that the transcription is accurate. Um, because you can have mishear words, obviously, or that they've caught the sense, the very subtle sense of exactly what's going on. And you also need to remember that the people are listening in and they're not seeing it, and body language is hugely important. Yes. Because I could say, James, I really like you. (laughs) You don't want to see what you don't want to know what he did. Yes, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. someone listening to our Sticky conversation out me like that, yeah. so. would, um, would would not get it. So yeah. there are problems with audio surveillance, and that meant that there are problems with the legality of it in court, the accuracy of it in court. And there's a whole history of allowing audio surveillance being caught, and and it's also to do with intrusion. So I can hear what's going on in this room because I'm in it, but I had a dictograph, I could be downstairs, um, or I could be outside, but that means I haven't been given a legal right to enter the property. Yes. So does it count as evidence that I can use in court, or do I need to have a warrant to be able to uh, where's private? Where's your private space? What's your private space, yeah, yeah. and what can I or can't I get into? And this and this is
2: what's so interesting about the FBI in this case. They are riding roughshod yeah. over all of that. A, a, they don't care about the truth. They are they are making things up in order to, you know, dis- simply destroy, disrupt, neutralise, harm people, uh, and they don't care about the legality. I mean, this is expressed, you know, shown quite well in the film where they just basically break into uh, Seberg's uh, hotel room mm-hmm. uh, and and kill her dog. Yes, uh, which is that's quite, really quite shocking, sort of, you know, really, really, really shocking um no i mean that that absolutely fascinating yeah
1: so the, low, the point is is that even if you just look at that one aspect of it okay you've got the technology of listening yes. but then which i thought was fascinating it's the legal ramifications the legal, of it yeah. and then the ethical ramifications yes. of it so so yeah, yeah. what's private what isn't private and the most common example of people intruding on your private space now is people having ironically it's probably in cinemas yes. so it's people having a conversation on their phone in the cinema you can't do that no um but you know in the past where when how they, does this concept and the idea of private space develop? And that's how all of this links to phone boxes. Yes. So, you know, if you've got a phone box in the street, so someone could have a private conversation, audio space yeah, yeah. is contained, isn't it?
2: Yeah. The church committee that are tasked to look into the activities of the FBI publish in the early 70s uh, their final report, where they, they make pretty harsh judgment on the kind of activities that have been put forward by the counterintelligence programme. And I'll give you a quote here. Too many people have been spied upon by too many government agencies and too much information has been illegally collected. The government has often undertaken the secret surveillance of citizens on the basis of their political beliefs, even when those beliefs pose no threat of violence or illegal acts on behalf of a hostile foreign power. The government, operating primarily through secret and biased informants, but also using other intrusive techniques such as wiretaps, microphone bugs, surreptitious mail opening and break-ins, has swept in vast amounts of information about the personalised views and associations of American citizens. Investigations of groups deemed potentially dangerous, and even groups suspected of associating with potentially dangerous organizations, so um, Seaberg, have continued for decades, despite the fact that those groups did not engage in unlawful activity. Mm. Having said that, it's I imagine it still continues today yeah. throughout the US.
1: Yeah.
2: Now I'm going to take us in a. Do you have any more on this?
1: Uh, no, no, no. It's all you can. You can move on. I could talk for hours on this. I'm going to take listening. us in a,
2: in a slightly different direction, which is about what do we do with this kind of misinformation, and I will argue, we need to become historians. Oh, nice! Um, because effectively, this is what historians have been trained to do forever. Okay. You know, they are constantly looking at at bias and objectivity and how things are produced. And at a time when we've got so much misinformation around there, the kind of skills that you have as historians are incredibly useful. But also, it's something that. <laughs> librarians are up on uh an information specialist have a look at this poster here which is from the international society of librarians and international specialists
1: how to spot fake news oh like it consider the source um read beyond headlines can be outrageous find out what actually is going on check the author supporting sources where did the evidence come from check the date uh Check your biases. Consider your own judgment. That's good. Ask the experts. And then the best one of all is, is it a joke? Yeah, exactly. So important. You know, it might be so outlandish. It might be satire. Um, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because one of the problems historians have is identifying jokes in the past. Yeah. You have something completely outlandish and you've just missed the context. Like, Actually, Sat- someone's, someone's yeah. rolling in laughter yeah. here.
2: But, I mean, it, but it's important
1: about how... The role
2: of history within the curriculum, within schools, within universities, within broader society, and not the kind of popular history, but actually the nuts and bolts of how you put history together is so important. In, in Finland, they have a nationwide multi-level programme to actually teach society how to spot fake news. Yeah. Um, partly because they've got an 800-odd mile border with Russia and you look at what Russia has been doing, destabilising things in the Ukraine and other, and other areas, they, the, the country needs to be geared up to that. And it reminds me very much of um, Arthur Marwick's The New Nature of History. Have you read The New Nature of History? It is a poison chalice of a book. I read it as a 16-year-old many, many... My God, that's many decades ago <laughs> now, far too long ago. But even then, uh, he was... He was encouraging people to think about how you approach a source and he had a series of prescriptions whenever you looked at any source one is the source authentic is it purport is it what it purports to be number two when exactly was the source produced what's its date how close to the date to the date of the events to which it relates or to dates relevant to the topic being investigated? How does this particular source relate chronologically to other sources? How does it relate to other significant dates? Thirdly, what type of source is it? Mm. Um, is it an official report, a public document, a record, a private letter? So, how do we actually start thinking about it in terms of its genre? Fourthly, how did the source come into existence in the first place and for what purposes? What person or group created the source? What basic attitudes, prejudices, vested interests would he or she or they have been likely to have had? Who's it written to? Who's it addressed to? Fifthly, how far is the author of the source really in a good position to provide first-hand information on the particular topic the historian is interested in? Is it the writer dependent on hearsay? Sixthly... How exactly was the document understood by contemporaries? What precisely does it stay? Think about terminology, think about paleography, your redacted letter there, think about how that operates. Lastly, seventhly, how does the source relate to knowledge obtained from other sources, both primary and secondary? So, I rest my case. Mm. Um, you need to be trained as a historian. Yeah in
1: this day. No, history is, you know... That's just how to be a historian so in, like, five five yeah, things there, absolutely. isn't it? Yeah, how to spot fake news. You basically have to be one of us. Yes. Um, well, brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Um, just one little thing I wanted to say at the end is that when um, the dictograph, going back to 1912, became yeah. famous, it then became famous in um, on stage. Huh. There was a famous case called the Argyle case, which was, um, it played at the Criterion Theatre on Broadway from December 1912 to June 1913, making nearly a quarter of a million bucks in 1912, which is full on. And then the dictograph becomes famous in films, um, in plots of books. It's uh, this whole idea of audio surveillance, which Seaberg is doing, being something that public are interested in. Um, that itself has got its own history, which you can explore if you're interested in fiction, if you're interested in in film, you're interested in plays. you can look at the ways, yes. the ways that this all linked together. I think this is a brilliant idea to do this. We should do more. More on Move, truth and lies. More more movie-related things like this. Yeah, so if you wanted
2: to see Seaberg, uh, it's in cinemas from the 10th of January.
1: 10th of January. Um, we'd highly recommend it. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, we've really enjoyed this. Hope you do too. I hope you all had a nice Christmas, New Year. You can follow me. Um, I'm on Twitter at Dr Sam Willis. You can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. And please check out Histories of the Unexpected Dot com because we are on tour and it's got all of our tour dates so where are we now we are in the beginning of january and what have we got coming up james we are at the rope tackle art center in shoreham on sea on the 17th we're at the kenneth moore theater in london on the 30th Crediton and art center the 31st of january then we're back to london on the 2nd of february back down to devon uh, to cowstock arts on the 7th and a few more gigs. But those are the upcoming ones. We've got two shows on tour, our original live show, and now one on the Tudors. Which is brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. So um, do check that out. And, do please and we're coming to Scotland. Come and see us live. We're coming we're to Scotland. We're coming to Scotland. Glasgow, to and
2: Glasgow and Aberdeen. Because yeah. people said, come north of the border and... We yep. will be there. James and I live in Devon, so
1: we can also go to yes. Manchester, which counts as yes. north of the yes, border. I'm a bit frightened. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Terrifying. Um, yeah, wonderful. Uh, see you all soon. Bye. Bye.